What is up, everyone? I'm Chris Cage with Green Belly Meals. And today we sit down with Mike Fotenhauer, the founder of the iconic pack company Osprey Packs. I actually threw like the AT with an Osprey Exos 58, as well as bicycle toward the length of New Zealand with an Osprey Atmos 65 strapped to my back. In short, I've used Osprey Packs a lot, which is why I'm stoked to talk with Mike about the story behind the gear. Mike has been involved literally by hand with the evolution of backpacks for one of the largest backpacking pack companies on earth for nearly 50 years. Osprey Packs continues to be on the cutting edge of making some of the best and most popular packs. We're going to hear about how the company got started, how it grew, how they design their packs, and how backpacks have evolved over the past several decades. Let's dive in. Mike, what's up? Thanks for chatting with us today. Yeah, great to be here, Chris. Cool. If we could, I'd like to start off on some of the early days. So it looks like you started Osprey in 1974 in Santa Cruz. How... And why did you first start making these packs by hand, right? Yes, I did. Well, I I needed a job. I was uh, attending the University of California at Santa Cruz. I was working in the restaurant industry. And uh, frankly, I wasn't terribly enjoying college experience, nor the jobs in restaurants. So I had been building my own gear for a number of years already and realized that I love doing that. I can make money doing that and uh, could be my own boss. So that one thing led to another and I opened up a retail shop in downtown Santa Cruz and Mm. started from there. Were you in your 20s, I guess? Yeah, I was uh, 21 then. How did you get foot traffic to the uh, retail shop? Well, I had an excellent location. Everything was word of mouth. I never did any advertising, but people just passed the word around that there was a guy downtown building gear, custom made. And in addition to that, I did a lot of repair work for people. Santa Cruz has got a good population of travelers who travel around the world and uh, also people who enjoy the outdoors. So it was a good, good location and a good clientele. I read somewhere that you have an art and design background. And it sounds like you just liked the outdoors. Did you have any vision beyond the retail shop? No, honestly, I I never imagined uh, running a factory or employing a bunch of people and growing a company. I really was enjoying just having a small shop. Uh, my girlfriend worked with me at the time and we... Uh, just took it day by day. It was uh, actually it was a wonderful time to be uh, growing up and learning how to uh, make a living. At what point of after opening the retail shop, did you feel like you had kind of reached critical mass and you're willing to invest in uh, the next step? I guess the first stage of that was moving production to Vietnam. So I, from I guess we're talking about Santa Santa Cruz, though, right? You had a retail shop in Santa Cruz. Yes. That, well, yeah, that was a that was the only retail shop for Osprey for over ten years, and that was myself and and uh, my girlfriend back then. And we, uh, well, what happened is ten or so years after starting the company, I I got married and uh, my wife got involved with Diane, and and uh, one day she said, "Why don't we take this to the next level?" And I had to agree. You know, I, we were starting a family, and we needed to. Uh, get more income. And uh, naively, we 
jumped into it. And... Were you scared or at, at the risk, or did you feel pretty comfortable with the with the sales and the trajectory that y'all were on? Really, had no idea what we were moving into. I recall uh, I went to the my first trade show, outdoor retailer trade show, and uh, ski industry shows, and learned a lot. I didn't really know what was going on. I remember a sales representative called me up and described himself as a rep and I had no idea what that meant and what he was doing. And I was so involved in the making and the manufacturing and that was just a that was a, easily a twelve hour day every day doing getting all that together, the designing, the cutting, the sourcing the materials. So we learned as we went and we picked up um sales reps, but it was uh it was intimidating at first to get a small order for wholesale and to be overwhelmed for a week building that that order night and day and then more and more would come and if you had to hire more people it was it's a never-ending battle and when you were talking to these reps and you said that you were learning a lot are you talking specifically on how to distribute the products yeah how to get it out there to all the sales channels how to uh open up new retailers and uh how to do pricing and you know, understand finance. It's a multifaceted battle. And we took our time learning it, which I think is the best way you evolve to be a stronger company when you learn things at their own pace and not jam and cram. Who is making all your packs then? Uh, I was and uh, a few hires that we found in Santa Cruz. Wow. I was doing all the design work. And uh, I think we had a staff of about eight people in Santa Cruz until we realized we couldn't keep up with demand. And we, my wife and I, and uh, my son moved out to uh, Colorado and were able to find a much larger ready workforce there. Yeah. Again, I read another place that y'all had moved to Colorado. And then at some point you ultimately started manufacturing in Vietnam and you and your family actually moved there. So what was it like moving your family there? Uh, it was uh, a very exciting experience. I I think one of the primary motivations for going there wasn't just to uh, get involved in the production of our product over there, but to have my kids grow up in a completely different cultural environment. We moved from a town of 800 to a city of 8 million. <laughs> and the uh, change was drastic, but very exciting. And for me, I've been going to Vietnam for a couple of years already. We had already started production there. And I felt left out because I, I always like to be close to the making of the product and be very hands-on. So for me, it was uh, an essential part of growing the company to be involved in the what the manufacturers were doing. How's your Vietnamese? <laughs> I have tried learning Vietnamese. I studied with a, a tutor for, I think, five months and Came out of that experience knowing almost nothing. Very difficult language, I think. Uh, and I'm not sure that I have the right brain to learn. I'm an old guy, I guess. And anyway, it was it was a fun experience, though, trying to learn that language. And I do know a little bit, but not much. It, it's tonal, isn't it? It's got six different tones. So it's to me, it's like a bird song or something like that. I know. I, uh, I've actually lived in Southeast Asia and Thailand specifically for uh-huh. a couple of years. And... I know, like for example, the word soy, you can pronounce it five different ways and each pronunciation has a different meaning. And it is just literally a foreign language. It just does not resonate with me. 
Well, fortunately, the Vietnamese are very good at learning other languages and they, <laughs> they do learn it and they, they always have a good time and really enjoy listening to foreigners try to speak their language. They make some big mistakes when they try, but they love that, I think. Yeah. So what year did you go to Vietnam? Uh, moved to, to Vietnam in 2003. We started production in 2001 when the U.S. normalized trade. My family and I lived there for four years. Wow. And so the, we're talking about the 80s. You're in Colorado. And then fast forward 15, 20 years, you're in Vietnam. What was the big growth that happened in between then? Yeah, our growth was largely dependent on our capability to meet demand. And we never had enough capacity. Building our backpacks is of, takes a lot of skill, particularly sewing skills. And that skill is hard to find. We moved to Colorado because there were a number of skilled sewers who were out of work, um, primarily Navajo sewers. And um, that allowed us to grow coming from Santa Cruz. But with all of our competition moving offshore by the end of the last century, we were forced to do the same. And when we went to Vietnam, we were amazed at the sewing quality. And of course, the costs were much lower. So our ability to grow just rocketed from there. Do you feel like Osprey grew in that time period just as a company, getting more traction and more customers? Or did you feel like there was something going on in the hiking and the backpacking space that kind of enabled that growth? I think both of those things are true. I've seen ups and downs in the cycle of backpacking, but by far mostly up. It's sort of like two steps forward, one step back um, over maybe 10-year cycles. But uh, I do think that outdoor gear has gotten better. It's gotten more comfortable. It's gotten lighter. You don't have to be an expert or a fanatic to go out and enjoy backpacking anymore. It's, it's become a much more culturally acceptable pastime. Uh, although I have seen the duration of trips maybe shorten from a week to a few days or weekends. Yeah, for sure. So you started off basically making these by hand in a retail shop and then you moved to Colorado and ended up in Vietnam. And what were some big milestones and growth for you over that duration that... I mean, Osprey is a, is a household name now. So what were kind of some yeah milestones and, and growth in between then? Well, so, I think... Know, it, maybe partnerships with REI, things like that? Yes, for sure. REI was a, a significant part of our growth because they you know, instantly took our product out to a much larger market and did it in a, in a great way. So I would attribute a lot of that to REI and to uh, our sales rep force, which we have cultivated over many years and are a group of excellent individuals that have wonderful relationships with specialty retailers around the country. And uh, our ability to meet demand, to deliver on time, to do proper marketing and to have all the sales channels opened up. We just sort of naturally grew with the growth of the industry and I think we did a great job. I'd like to talk a little bit about y'all's actual gear and uh, specifically the evolution of the packs. I'm 32 now and I've noticed backpacking gear has changed a lot. And uh, gosh, I'm, I've been backing about 20 years now. I was about 12. So since 1974 to now, can you break down specifically on the, the backpack evolution? So anything related to materials, 
frame, pockets. I know it looks like you worked a lot on that mesh panel. What kind of have been some of those main evolutionary marks since 1974 that has brought us up to today? Well, back in 1974, of course, we were using American-made materials, which were excellent. They were not high-tech, lightweight materials. That's evolved over the decades to be uh, much more refined capabilities of Asian manufacturing with milling and computer design has revolutionized the fabrics industry. And there, of course, there are new materials like ultra-high molecular weight polyethylenes. It's a mouthful, but um, those things have helped to lighten up our product. New frame materials um, and anatomic design, I think, is it's something I've always been very focused on. And I think it's it's gotten better throughout the industry, the capability of building a product that uh, fits the body so well and transfers load has greatly improved. I have been interested in um, lightweight design in ventilative technologies for quite some time. And I prefer to wear that sort of product rather than a, your normal um, internal frame close to body um, molded foam back panel type construction. So I've pushed that technology all along and I still am challenged and I'm never happy with the designs I do. By and large, I, I think they can be improved. Typically when they're done, I'm ready to move on. Were y'all using canvas materials? No, the first stuff, I, I think the very first roll of fabric I bought was nylon cordura back in the 70s, early 70s. And oh, wow. Okay. I've, I've sewn with canvas, but canvas is it has fray. It's not near as strong as nylon. It's a great feeling material, but not as durable. I've also sewn garments using cottons and other fabrics. and uh, But the lightweight nylon stuff was the way to go. Yeah, it's just interesting looking back at the stuff you see people hiking with in the 70s and what they're hiking with now, and they just look like fundamentally different pieces of gear. Yeah. So that mesh panel, I remember the first time I got an Osprey pack, like I just wanted to lay on it. Like the back of that mesh was, it looked like an engineering accomplishment. Can you talk about that? What uh, it looks like it would be very difficult to manufacture. And it's also very unique. I don't see really any other yeah. packs with that kind of mesh panel going on. So for the listeners who aren't familiar, uh, Osprey packs have kind of a signature back panel that elevates the back kind of concave the frame. So it's not resting literally on your back. Your back is in contact with a mesh fabric, which makes for a well-ventilated, but also a really cushy backpacking experience. So yeah, how did that come about? Well, that concept of a mesh back panel has been around, I would say, since at least World War II. I've seen packs from that era. They were not terribly comfortable. They were very tight, trampoline-like back panels that didn't have anatomic contouring in them. And I wanted to build lightweight gear and I understood that if you say follow tent technology where you use aluminum or fiberglass or other materials to create tension with fabric panels, you can dispense with a lot of the foams and cushionings and you can get a much better contact and uh, more ventilated and a more comfortable feel because your body sinks into that panel if it's designed properly. And yes, it's it's a very difficult product to manufacture. We have our own uh, facility in Vietnam. We have 80 people over there that work with us in design and 
quality control and in development. It's our own team. And they, over the course of the years that we've been there since the early 2000s, have worked to perfect building that. We build all of our own prototypes and then we give them to the factories and show them how to make it. And of course, since then, we've been copied a lot. But I think there's a lot of nuance that gets lost in the copying that took years to understand and develop. And I'm I'm still not happy. I'm still pushing on that. Yeah, I guess that brings us to another question, which it seems like packs are constantly evolving. And I think Osprey has not only stayed relevant, but continues to make great packs. So you talked a little bit about developing prototypes and handing it off to the factories. But how do you continue to stay ahead of the curve? And how does that design and testing process work? Well, we we have uh, two teams over in Vietnam as well as here. One of them does our more conventional design, which is not conventional, I think, by any means. But on top of that, we have a an innovation lab that focuses on finding new materials and technologies, looking at other industries, going to trade fairs, and examining the possibilities of what's out there so that it can be used in a backpack design. And we have a lot of fun doing that. It's hard work because you not only have to track this stuff down, you have to develop relationships with the suppliers and work with them to morph the use of of their product to your needs. And we push that a lot. We, We have a lot of fun, I think, doing that. We challenge each other to do better all the time and we get out and use our gear. So there's that satisfaction of of making it and then using it. And typically on a pack, we will do between 10 and 30 or 40 iterations in the development of the product. Whoa. Over and over and over again. I have a studio in Colorado where I do my design where I'm sitting right now. and It just gets filled up with um, prototypes. And sometimes the changes are not noticeable, but you get out and use it. You come back and you make changes and you just keep evolving that until the curtain drops and you can no longer change. You have to go to market. And it's always like that. It's never done. It's a continuous improvement involvement. Is there any new tech stuff you guys can hint at that you might have been or are thinking about deploying whether it's 3D printing or anything like that? Yeah, we're working with all of that new technology. Um, I'm in the midst of that. And that should be coming out, I believe, in January, February. So you'll see that hit the market. And, uh, you know, it's it's another set of leaps, I think, in some new technologies and materials. Um, when you say we'll see that hit market, you mean some sort of piece on the pack will be manufactured 3D? Yeah, I'm hoping. <laughs> I'm working on that right now. That technology is extremely expensive. But it's, <laughs> uh, it's an area that we are looking at and playing in and believe that we need to be involved with because I think that's the future of product design, digital technologies and platforms and uh, digital design techniques. So yes, we are pushing into that. I think over the next five to 10 years, you'll see backpacks as well as many other products radically changed in the way they're built and where they're built and how they're built and which materials they use. More sustainable materials is a big drive on our part. Cool. Very interested in this topic. And do you have any sense of how much of the backpacking market share for packs specifically Osprey has? You know, you you can look at all of the uh, industry um, 
info and data out there. I don't know how reliable that is, so I don't really pay much attention to that. I think it depends on which area that you're talking about. If it's technical packs, we own a good percentage of that. If it's um, technical bike packs, we own a large part of that. If it's technical travel, our heritage is more based on the, the more complicated technical, more expensive parts of that industry. And we, we do okay in the other areas. But uh, over the years, uh, our percentage of ownership in that market has grown. And that's a challenge too. Yeah. I guess one thing I find really interesting, which I'm sure you're highly aware of, is there are tons of these small, ultra-light cottage gear companies popping up, it seems like, every day. And in an attempt to shave every ounce, they're making these frameless hip belt free packs. What's your take on that? Where do you see this obsessive ounce counting going? Well, I think if you take that to the full length, you have to be obsessive about what you put in the pack too. And I think that's a small niche of the market. I appreciate that niche. I Right now I'm working on the um, new generation of our Levity Lumina, which is definitely a gram counting process. In terms of eliminating suspension, I'm, I have problems with that, I think, because I believe that a, a suspension, however minimal, adds a lot to the efficiency of the carry. And if you want to be comfortable and efficient in your carry, you need to have something to support the load and to keep it from sagging and from making your, your backpack trip painful. On the other hand, Ultralight weight is ultralight weight. And if you can carry around 10 pounds or even less, you don't have to worry about that pain so much. So it's it's a fine line. Yeah, and a very subjective line that's I mean, everybody's totally different on what they're actually doing out there and what they're looking for. What are some areas on these uh innovations that you're looking to cut weight? If you you know, suspension seems like something that's not up for compromise. So are you looking at other materials and straps, anything, everything? Yeah, there are some new fabrics coming out that are exciting. They're moldable, thermoformable fabrics, which means you can eliminate seams and mm. build you know, the main bag out of one piece or fewer pieces, potentially less failure. But then you do have to attach things to the outside of that. So there can be a big compromise there. And those fabrics are extremely expensive. So kind of leave the masses behind. But that small niche is often willing to pay those higher prices. And the framing, there are, I've tried carbon fibers, I've, you know, lightweight aluminum, some even thin steel, um, which is amazing stuff. Playing around with that constantly and trying to get the right setup that is as minimal as possible. And that's fun and a big challenge. Yeah, but backpacking, we've talked a lot kind of in general about I feel like this 1974 to 2020 time frame, it's like backpacking in my mind, I feel like has grown a ton in that time frame. And I feel like you've not only witnessed that growth, but you've been an integral part of it. You know, Osprey is now a big company. So, what are your thoughts on that growth? What, what do you think that's attributed to? And what have you seen? Well, I like to think it's you could attribute it to people's awareness of the outdoors. I think that's become amplified with the COVID pandemic. I think that environmental concerns play a large part in that, in uh, 
maybe helping to push younger people outdoors and become more aware of what they potentially could be losing in the future. It's also, uh, I think, backpacking gear is quite affordable. You have to thank Asian production for that. Um, I don't know how long that's going to be sustainable because the economies in Asia are growing, but you can, when I think of how much work goes into our backpacks, it's amazing that we can produce them at the prices we do, but those prices are going up. Materials costs are going up constantly and so is labor. And then of course, evolution of design has made the gear more comfortable, um, a lot less painful than it was when I was a kid, which is one of the reasons I got into this business is that I carried backpacks around. My dad would take us out backpacking and it was often a painful experience. And I thought, why? Why does it have to be this way? Yeah. What is your role in the company now? What's exciting for you? Well, I'm a lead designer for the Innovation Lab and I work with a team of about 10 or 15 people and we uh, we focus on bringing new materials and technologies and, and building new product using those so that's always exciting to me. I am very hands-on, and but I need to know the product from the moment it's conceived to when it's manufactured and every step in between. So I'm, I was going to Vietnam four or five times a year. It's That's come to a halt lately, but we've got a whole group of designers. Well, we did. We have some left over there and still remain there, but uh, things have become much more virtual in the design process. So I spend a lot of time in web conferences with Vietnam and other teams discussing uh, all those different aspects of new technologies and materials and putting the product together over and over and over again till we like it. So what is on the horizon for Osprey? Continue making great packs? Where yeah. do you see yourself going? Well, we've had some pressure to move into other realms besides packs, but my feeling is that we would lose focus if we did that. And I personally have never been satisfied with that we've accomplished what we need to do. And I don't know that I ever will be, but I don't see any need to to move beyond that realm, like into tents, sleeping bags, outerwear, et cetera. A lot of companies do that. And I feel that they lose veracity as soon as they do that. And I prefer to Keep the challenge going. It's It never slows down. And I, I think you'll see Osprey continue to evolve and innovate and enjoy doing that. And hopefully we can bring more people into the outdoors by creating gear that excites them and, and that they love to wear and they feel comfortable doing that. Well, interesting. So no, no tents or sleeping bags on the horizons. No, I have built those before I started Osprey. I made that kind of gear. And um, I just feel like there's there's lots of good stuff out there. We don't really need to jump into that. And uh, our company is big enough, I think, at the moment. Um, that would just add more complication with supply chain and sales. The whole gamut would, would be a harder thing to uh, put our arms around. Since you're the founder and business owner and entrepreneur, what have been some of the biggest stressors, biggest headaches, biggest turning points for Osprey since the beginning? Well, there are always a number of annoying headaches that happen in the business. Um, one thing that I don't particularly enjoy is is dealing with intellectual property. <laughs> uh, 
I'm not a big fan of the whole concept of patents. And uh, I always philosophically have been opposed to even doing patents. Lately, I've we've done some of those. Um, there is pressure to do that to help grow the value of the company and also to protect yourself because it's a game that everyone plays. Has that Other- a lot of bandwidth or... I mean, not to put you on the spot about any legal issues, but has, I mean, has that caused a lot of issues? It's caused some issues, things that we naively didn't, we just didn't know existed. And we were suddenly having to confront and deal with threats from other companies um, and highly debatable issues about whether we were approaching on their product and who had it first and trying to dig up prior art because we have a ton of prior art, but it's not all well documented. So some of it you just simply couldn't find. It's a game. It's just a big distracting game and you do have to deal with attorneys and pay exorbitant fees. And um, to me, it's, I understand why it's there. Some, you know, copying is a problem, but nevertheless, copying continues despite that. And I would prefer that it all went away and everybody was free to, uh, make the best product they could and that best product wins. Right. So, I mean, it sounds like that's something that continues to be a headache and has been a headache. Have there been any big decisions, pivotal moments or terrifying moments? I mean, warehouse on, <laughs> warehouse on fire kind of stuff? Uh, no. I mean, the COVID thing has been a, an eye-opener. It's uh, When you look at our supply chain, you realize how tenuous the whole thing can become because of any one of those pillars falls. For example, if uh, a factory in Vietnam goes under, we have to be well aware of that before that happens and, of course, try to prevent that by working with them. Um, That's just one possibility. I mean, there are raw material suppliers that might go under that are key to our product line. It's a chain of uh, responsibilities and relationships that can be disrupted during a time like this. And if you don't understand how all these parts fit together and you don't stay on top of that, you could find yourself out of business overnight. So that's stressful, but it's okay for us because I think we're well aware and on top of most of those details. That's taken many years to get to that point, but... We feel pretty comfortable that way. But nevertheless, it's it's a concern. Yeah. So when we were booking this appointment, you were, I think, on a backpacking trip. So <laughs> I, th- I think so. Where were you? Uh, I think that was what, like a couple weeks ago, maybe? I was up in the San Juan Mountains, which... No I, kidding. I, I was in the San Juan Mountains about a month ago. Yeah. Well, they're a half hour... You know, it's a half hour drive for me to get up into that beautiful area. It's, I think it's the, like the least used national forest in the continental U.S. And it's a great place to, to uh, hit the higher alpine region when it's too hot down here. And I live in the zone between the canyons of the southwest and the, the alpine mountains of the San Juans. So I can go south if it's cold out and I want to get warm down in the canyons where the winds are, are shut off. and if it's too hot here, I can go up into the high alpine areas. That's what I was doing then. I was testing uh, a few packs up in the in the San Juans. Very cool. Is hiking and uh, backpacking your your main outdoor hobby? Oh yeah, I have a pretty big piece of property where I live, and it's got about three miles of trail that's around it, and mountain biking, and it's uh, so just about every day I'm able to 
get out hiking or test backpacks or go mountain biking. And with COVID, it's it's like I'm so lucky and happy to be locked down where I am because it's the outdoors is just a playground here for us. It's, it's so there's such small population around here that you don't have to worry about infringing on other people. You can get out there and it's it's pretty empty. Yeah, for sure. Would you say that San Juan's are your favorite region or where would be some of your favorite trails to hit? I would say the San Juan's for sure. Combined with the canyons of the Southwest, Bears Ears and that whole region down there is, is amazing. There are uh, Anasazi or ancient ruins not far from where I live. In fact, I've got relics on my land. Hmm. So that's always another dimension that you experience when you go out hiking is, is seeing how people lived a thousand years ago. And that's so close and so readily available around here. Any good uh, hiking in Asia? Well, most of my time has been spent in the zone of Vietnam or Cambodia, Laos, and Thailand. I, I have been doing a bit of... Um, motorcycling, small motorbikes with some friends up in uh, like in North Vietnam and Laos on not so much backcountry, but on the beautiful roads and highways up that are in remote regions. And I enjoy that too, getting out and meeting the, the locals in those less populated areas and realizing that the Ho Chi Minh, Saigon is one thing, but rural Vietnam is a completely different thing. Yeah, I have- I'm aware there are a lot of hill tribes up in the uh, in the north as well. Yeah. Um, well, quarantine, it's been a big thing going on. Have you taken on anything fun or what have you been doing to enjoy the time besides hiking in the San Juans? I picked up archery again. I used to shoot archery when I was younger. So I, Ooh, I, nice. Yeah, I built a, a, a target and set that up and I've been shooting archery. Uh, I just recently finally broke down and purchased a drone, um, mostly for the reason of being able to fly that thing up and find out where the fires are originating from around here. There have been a number of fires that if you see them, you don't know whether they're 500 yards away or, or whether they're five miles away. And it's important to know those things. So I bought a drone so that I can do some surveillance over the land, but also to play around with. I'm learning about how to play with that amazing toy. Cool. And uh, I, my background was originally in art and printmaking, so I've, I've started to play a bit more, focusing back on um, relief printing, and I enjoy that a lot. Well, Mr. Fotenhauer, I think we are wrapping up. All right. I really appreciate your time, and thanks for having the chat, and we appreciate your gear, so thanks for coming on. All right, great talking to you, Chris. All right, there you go. Interview with Mike Fotenhauer of Osprey Packs. A big thanks to Mike for chatting with us today. If you'd like to learn more about Osprey Packs and check out their gear, go to osprey.com. This is Chris Cage with Green Belly Mules signing out. Peace.